Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, Senior Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. National Public Health Week is observed across the United States each year during the first full week of April, and this year will run from April 3rd through April 9th. Originally conceived and organized by the American Public Health Association and now in existence for more than 25 years, the theme this year is Centering and Celebrating Cultures in Health. For National Public Health Week this year, we sat down with Dr. Kristen Krauss, instructor in the Department of Urban Global Public Health and Deputy Director of the Center for Health, Identity, Behavior, and Prevention Studies at the Rutgers School of Public Health. Our conversation covered not only her current areas of research focus, but the importance of health equity among traditionally marginalized communities, how the early days of the HIV AIDS epidemic shaped much of the worldview on public health, the influence of culture on many a health outcome, and lessons learned from past public health emergencies. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Krauss, for our latest Managed Care Cast podcast. Before we begin, can you please introduce yourself and your work to our audience? Sure, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my name is Kristen Krauss. I am an instructor in the Department of Urban Global Public Health at the Rutgers School of Public Health, um, and I'm also the Deputy Director of the Center for Health, Identity, Behavior, and Prevention Studies, which is a leading training ground for LGBTQ research, scholars, anything under that umbrella. You currently have funding to examine vaccine hesitancy, generalized and more specifically related to COVID-19 among LGBTQ individuals living in New Jersey. From your research so far, can you break down some common reasons for hesitancy among sexual minority individuals in the state and how these differ from a more general population? Yeah, so it's been really interesting to work in this space, um, especially since the onset of COVID. Um, So I will preface by saying we haven't actually specifically examined vaccine hesitancy in that sample yet. Um, We're currently, we just finished cleaning the data um, that we collected between October 21 and October 22. Um, And so right now we're kind of just looking at the overall demographic characteristics of just vaccination patterns overall. Um, And we're focusing more right now on the adult, what we consider like the adult vaccine preventable diseases. So adult slash adolescent. So, you know, we're looking at, we we did look at COVID, but we're also looking at HPV and hepatitis A and B, meningitis, um, uh, influenza for both the, prior to COVID and also like the, the, uh, since the onset of COVID, um, and shingles for, for older folks. What we've seen so far from this is that the, the main demographic differences are actually centered around age, whereas the older folks are actually less vaccinated across the board, uh, compared to the younger folks. And some of the vaccines have more, you know, significant differences than the other, um, I can say with 
great happiness and glee that um, I believe it's 96% of our sample uh, was vaccinated for COVID um, at least once. So they at least got some version of the vaccine. Um, but, you know, when we think about vaccine hesitancy in general, I think it's important to just, you know, acknowledge the the historical connotation that um, has been often placed on minority communities, whether that's um, racial and ethnic communities, whether that's sexual and gender minorities. Um, and there's this, you know, history of feeling kind of in two different two different camps and probably many more. So on one side, you have folks who have been historically marginalized and feel almost like they've been guinea pigs and experimented on. And this has been well documented. I mean, you look at Henrietta Lacks, you look at the Tuskegee, um, what happened to the Tuskegee Airmen um, and the and syphilis and all of that. And those were federally, like federally mandated um, studies that were going on. And then on the other hand, when you think about just the history of the HIV epidemic um, and the fact that you had predominantly the LGBT community fighting the FDA to get approval for different, you know, life-saving protocols for clinical trials um, to the point of saving citizens and protests and all of these kinds of things. And so folks who are minorities or who even hold these intersecting minority identities, there's plenty of reasons why they would be hesitant to get any vaccine, whether it's COVID, whether it's a future HIV vaccine, whether it's the influ the annual flu vaccine. And so, you know, we have to kind of meet folks where they are and kind of understand what the underpinnings of that so we can, you know, attempt to address it. Um, you know, it's interesting, though, in the case of COVID, because one of the things that kind of came through in some of our interviews, and we're still also analyzing that data, um, is almost the sense of community protection, though, when it came to the COVID vaccine, or even when it comes to a hypothetical future potential HIV vaccine, um, and that even folks who may not be considered the most at risk for HIV would still be completely willing to get an HIV vaccine just because there is that level of community connectedness. Um, and when you think about folks who came of age and who were, you know, alive during the height of the HIV epidemic, when public health warnings were the norm, public health uh, decisions were the norm, closing bathhouses, promoting condom use and other barriers and all of these kinds of things, um, we weren't totally surprised that we did see a relatively high um, uptake for the COVID vaccine for this reason is that so many people in, in these communities are used to heeding these public health messages and um, kind of understand what it's like to live in a public health emergency. Um, because, you know, again, at the height of the HIV epidemic, it wasn't necessarily a widespread event that everybody was experiencing where COVID very much was. Um, so it's it's complex and it's layered, but, um, you know, we just have to try to meet people where they are. I remember growing up um, as a child of the 80s when HIV and AIDS first became aware to me. Um, I think the first exposure I had to it was Freddie Mercury 
And then I found out years later, um, because my mother wanted to share this at the time, my uncle Robert had contracted AIDS, but she didn't want to tell us, but she always told me how one time when his doctors were drawing blood, some one of them pricked himself and absolutely flipped out. Looking back now, I feel like it's so, so long ago, but I feel also like it just happened. Mm-hmm. And it it's... Yeah, I mean, my dad was diagnosed in 1996 with, at that time, it was categorized as full-blown full AIDS with, you know, more than one opportunistic infection, a very, very low uh, CD4 count, a very, very high viral load. Um, and I think I, so I would have been in kindergarten, first grade around that time. And I found out when I was in, you know, fourth grade, and I actually just wrote an op-ed uh, that was published in Openly, uh, Outly, Openly, Outly, um, about this. But, you know, even then thinking about how my parents had that conversation with me and, you know, what it was like disclosing that to a close friend and and her family and, you know, my parents and I were just kind of recounting that, like, it took a while for um, them to even disclose to some of our extended family members, just because the stigma was so, so grand, grandiose at that point, like, you really didn't know how people were going to react, who was going to have an issue with it. There was even a situation a few years ago where someone you know, this information had been public in in a few different ways. If you dug into my family, you could find you could find it. And people like used it against my dad at a at a condo in a in a condo board association as like a scare tactic. And you know, that was in the last five to six years. So, you know, and some and sometimes you can think we've we've come so far. And in many ways we have. Um, but I think it is also important to like remember where where we came from and kind of what builds the history and the legacy of stigma, because it can never be fully eradicated once it's there. We're also talking about National Public Health Week during this podcast, and that runs from April 3rd to the 9th with the theme of centering and celebrating cultures in health. Why is it important to mark National Public Health Week? And can you discuss how culture may influence health outcomes, especially those resulting in healthcare disparities. I've always been of the opinion ever since I started my public health training that, um, you know, it feels very willfully ignorant to, for public health as a discipline or as a field or as a, as a research topic, um, to, to ignore culture and the impact that that has on people's lives, because almost every decision we make every day, whether we realize it or not, has something to do with a cultural underpinning or upbringing or background, where we, where we live, what we eat, how we dress, who we spend our time with, where, where we spend our time. Um, and to not, consider what that effect is on health is just not only misguided, but it, I, I feel like it could be very detrimental. Um, and I think one of, you know, one of the things I've grappled with over my last hmm, 10, 10 years now, 10 years being in the true like public health space um, is, you know, our training tells us that we have to do, that we have to try to 
positively impact the most people at one time. And we know that our resources are limited. And so that's a big undertaking and a big task. And when you have so many different cultural ideals at play, whether it is the type of food that people eat, like telling groups of people that they can't eat rice or that rice is unhealthy. It's like one of the things I hear in so many different spaces. It's like, oh, rice is unhealthy. Rice is like the underpinning of so many different dishes throughout the world, whether you are in Africa, whether you are in Asia, whether you are in South America, like rice is a central part or grains or whatever the case may be. So telling groups of people like, oh, no, you shouldn't eat that. Like, to what end is that actually cause any type of meaningful change? Um, And, you know, we could think about it from neighborhood contexts and religious contexts. And there's so many different ways that we can help improve health for people if we actually take these cultural you know, ideals into consideration. And, and some, and sometimes we also have to acknowledge that those ideals may go against our, our beliefs as public health professionals or practitioners. Um, And we have to figure out how to, to mend those fences and build those bridges. And, you know, some of those might be personally hard for us to overcome. I mean, I think about the current gun debate in this country, like, as a public health professional, as a person like I am, as a researcher who's studying gun violence, like personally believe that there needs to be limits. But I have to come to that space with the understanding that there's plenty of people that really hold that Second Amendment right to be true, that like they are entitled no matter what to own weapons and own firearms and protect themselves and protect their families and to just say no is not a good strategy either. So we have to kind of figure out how to come to this. I don't know if it's a central meeting point, but I appreciate that, you know, the National Public Health Week is actually taking some of these things into consideration because, um, you know, I think it needs to be a really big part of the conversation. What have been some of the most notable developments and or improvements in public health this century? And are there any missteps from past public health emergencies that you believe have shaped our current outlook in this space? I mean, look, we've come really far, right? When we think about, you know, I don't even think it's a necessarily a required course in many programs before, but I think One of the most fascinating classes I took when I was working on my MPH was histories, like the overall history of public health and how we got to where we were. And we read things like plagues and people. We learned about controlling sanitation and actually having trash pickup. Like we don't think of that as a a public health um, advancement, but but it is when you kind of read the history and what how societies and especially urban areas used to be vaccine development has been a huge accomplishment whether or not people want to acknowledge that and I think many of us in the public health space champion and celebrate that but the fact that we were able to get 
a vaccine for COVID in the time that we did um, was pretty monumental. And I think it, you know, as a, again, as a person who's been in this space, it, not to sound cliche, but it kind of like broke my heart in many ways to see how so much misinformation was spread and people in my own network, people in my own circles, people who I came into contact with on, you know, public transportation, or if I was taking a lift to the airport and just having those like one-on-one conversations with people who were genuinely concerned about the speed to which the COVID vaccine was developed, but had no kind of understanding as to why it was able to be developed that quickly. And the the analogy I tried to use was that, look, like the people who have been in the space for a while and in that particular vaccine development had the blueprint. They knew what the size of the house was going to be, right? Like they knew what parameters they were working within. But it wasn't until they actually were able to take the, and I'm not a bench scientist, but when they were able to actually take the genetic material and decode it and figure out what needed to go into the vaccine, then they got the individual room sizes and they were able to build out that blueprint a lot faster and kind of build the neighborhood at that point. And I feel like that analogy has kind of gotten some people to be like, oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense because then you can scale it up. And so the fact that we were even able to do that for COVID and we think about, you know, other vaccines, HPV, shingles, um, you know, I'm hopeful for an HIV vaccine, but, um, you know, that's still something that's been widely tested and to to date hasn't been super successful. you know, other ways to control diseases, the fact that we can even talk about HIV from a chronic point of view now and not an infectious disease point of view, it still very much is an infectious disease, but the fact that um, it can now be treated by like family medicine providers and internists and that the default doesn't have to be an infectious disease provider, I think is a, um, is a, is a huge thing. And I think, you know, we're getting there with some of the other big topics. You feel like there's been, you know, more talk about mental health. I think it needs to be a little bit more tailored and directed, but one step at a time. (laughs) And I, you know, I can only hope that in due part um, to the advancement of technology uh, and how we communicate that we can actually take lessons learned from, from this particular pandemic that we've been experiencing and still are very much experiencing I don't want to say COVID's over it's not um and in many ways the the technology and the communication has has been rough right like that's how misinformation has been able to spread so quickly and you know we've got people on social media and the actual media kind of acting as agents of knowledge without actually having the training um, or the the experience to back that up. But I think I'm, I'm hopeful. I have to stay hopeful to be in this space that we can at least kind of take the lessons learned and some of the skills gained and the processes developed and say like, hey, should this situation, and, and I think we need to kind of be realistic and say when a similar situation happens in the future. It may not look exactly like COVID, but it would be stupid for lack of a better word for us to 
think that, okay, COVID's the last big pandemic we're going to have to deal with because we know that hasn't been true historically. There's been so many pandemics that haven't necessarily reached the same global scale and reach that COVID has, but have definitely had regional reaches and, and HIV had its own reach and uh, other type of, you know, bird flu and swine flu and all of these other things like this isn't the last that we've seen so my big hope is that we can take some of those lessons learned and apply them in the future in a in a faster way so that you know when we're on the the onset of something like this again that we can say that worked really really well or that did not work at all so we need to try something else from the get-go um and it's not going to be easy and i think the other you know, I don't even know if this is super on topic, but the other thing to acknowledge is just the the burnout that a lot of people have had in this space. I mean, even myself some days, I'm like, why? <laughs> why am I doing this? Why do I care so much? Because it can be hard, but I, you know, I try to think about, I try to, I try to think about the advances that, that have been made even in my lifetime and before me. And um, as we were talking about earlier, just like, Li- like actually living uh, from the beginning, well, not the very beginning, but um, kind of from like the thick of the HIV epidemic to when antiretroviral treatment was developed and widely, more widely available um, to where we are now. It's like you have to, you have to maintain some sense of optimism and hope that that can be spread throughout other health outcomes. You have kind of already addressed this, but looking forward, what is your forecast for the future? Are there areas of concern in this space that you believe deserve greater attention? So many things, all of it, everything all at once. Um, You know, I mentioned mental health. I do think that it is receiving more attention and at least empathy uh, on a wider level. Um, which is good, but I I think we need to have, you know, more honest conversations about what that looks like and what burnout actually looks like um, in different spaces and in different industries. Um, I am worried about the burnout of public health professionals in the future. And, and I think some of this also comes back to like trying to, as much as we can, as much as any individual or collective group of individuals can keep disrupting the structures and the systems that have been put in place that are rooted in white white supremacy, misogyny, all of these things that are not um, creating equitable situations for people to achieve um, health equity. So whether that is addressing you know, we've talked so much about social determinants of health, but it's so much more than that. It's not it's not somebody's race that puts them at higher risk for X, Y, and Z health outcome. It's not somebody's sexual orientation. It is the homophobia and the transphobia they experience. It is the, I think we're up to 300 some anti-trans, anti-LGBT legis- pieces of legislation that have been introduced so far this year in the U.S., like, countrywide, statewide. It is racism within these systems. It is classism within these systems. And 
in order to reduce the health disparities, these things have to continually be tackled and dismantled every way possible. And again, it's not it's not an individual fix, but I do think that it's, you know, people like me having these conversations with my students. And then when they are out in the field, hoping that they will continue to have those conversations with their colleagues. And I tell my students all the time, you might not be in charge right now, but you will be in the future. So eventually the people who are making these decisions aren't going to be making decisions anymore for whatever, whatever reason. And so figuring out how to keep that top of mind with, again, without burning out and without continuously feeling like you're banging your head against the wall alone. And so sometimes it is good to have these type of events every year to remember that, you know, public, uh, those of us in public health, were also on the front lines in our own way, uh, especially during COVID, during every emerging infectious disease, during all of these different times, like we're continuously in this fight. It just may not look, we're, we're not wearing our, you know, we're not in hospitals necessarily all the time. We're not in clinics, but we're still very much in this fight. And the other thing that I am not a super expert on, but I know that it is going to continue to have a drastic impact on the the future of all health outcomes is climate change. And until we actually have, again, serious discussions that are more than just individual, make sure you recycle your laundry detergent or don't buy recyclable laundry detergent, buy these. I keep seeing these now like fancy, cute little like detergent sheets that you buy and throw in like, Sure, that is great. That is a step. But until we're having the much larger discussions, again, coming back to the structure, why are we continuously having train derailments in in places that are now causing massive chemical exposure to at and putting communities that are already disenfranchised further at risk? Like these are this comes back to these structural conversations. Um and so, you know, that's another another big piece of it um, that I'm hoping people take seriously. But again, it's it's way more than just the individual, like the individual actions certainly help. Um, but this is when it needs to be approached from a very like 100,000 foot view of like, how do we do this systematically? Before we close, do you have any closing thoughts what would you like to leave our audience to ponder what is the meaning of life uh (laughs) the thing that i've been continuously working on is just not being afraid to have the hard conversations um and in public health it can be it can be hard to have hard conversations it can be you know it can be easy to give presentations and it can be easy to say you know this is what this is what we think and this is how you know, things operate, but it doesn't always have to be like this. I mean, even, you know, even as if you consider just how like public health research is conducted, it's not equitable. It's not always forward thinking. It's still very much tied into politics and the political climate. I mean, the NIH and the CDC, these are government funded entities. And so um, the pendulum can swing at any point in time depending on what the current administration's priorities are, the current congressional priorities are. And um, 
you know, when you, when that trickles down to how, you know, universities are making decisions around tenure and promotion, how health departments are making decisions around resource distribution and allocation, when health systems are making decisions about where to build their next mega, mega complex. All of these things have an impact on each other. Um, and to think that public health is not political, um, to use the, a phrase I used earlier, is willfully ignorant. <laughs> um, and so it's that, it's, you know, acknowledging that some days are going to be rough and some days people who are in this space are very much going to not want to be in this space anymore and figuring out how to take that a mental health day or a mental health week or figuring out how to, you know, reset and come back and recenter um, or figure out other ways to, to make change. Um, it doesn't have to be everybody for themselves. And I think sometimes that's how it feels in public health. And so I think if I could leave any, in, you know, imparting thoughts, it's, you know, talk to your coworkers, talk to your other constituents within this space and figure out, you know, where the gaps are, where the support is needed and how to, you know, provide that for each other and keep, keep advocating for the change because we, we know that change is needed in, in many of these spaces and collectively, hopefully we can come together and do that. Well, on that note, um, for myself, AJMC, and our audience, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Of course. Thank you for having me. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.